You've been involved in gold for a long time. What's your origin story? How did you first become interested in it? What was your first encounter? What made you what made you think this shiny heavy metal was important? Well, uh, you know, everything started with a book I purchased in I think 2001. Uh, it was called Gold Wars from Ferdinand Lips. So it was a book about monetary history, how money came into existence. You know, in 2000, when we had Enron, Swiss Air, MCI, you know, uh, then 9-11, of course, and I only heard, you know, that Greenspan was saying, we can print as much money. And everyone was uh, cheering Greenspan saying, yeah, perfect. You know, the guy really knows what to do. And, and I was sitting there and I thought, hey, I have no clue what they're talking about. I don't understand the world I am in. And so basically I started to dig a bit deeper. And fortunately, I found this book about monetary history. And then I got in touch with Ferdinand Lips. So he pointed me out to the classic liberals. You know, he told me, read uh, Wilhelm Röpke, Friedrich August von Hayek, Ludwig von Mises. And that was the beginning of my journey. And then I think it took 2004, I started buying uh, physical gold for the first time. And since then, I, I knew that I somehow want to move into physical gold business. I understood that sound money is necessary for a sound society. And I also understood, you know, that central planning uh, is always a problem. I also understood that politics is always the problem and never the solution. And, and that, yeah, led me then basically uh, to where I am today. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned Ferdinand Lips in the U.S. I don't, I don't think he's a very well-known uh, person, but in my studies, I came across him and I heard a story that I, I don't know if it's true or not, that he was speaking to some bankers in Washington, D.C. and said to them that the average Swiss peasant knows more about gold than the average American banker. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely possible because it's also the truth. <laughs> it's probably both true and offensive at the same time. I don't, yeah. think, I don't think he made many friends with that remark. What do you think, do you, do you perceive a difference between how U.S., you know, Americans view gold versus the Swiss or the Germans? Honestly, I mean, you know, I have, I mean, a lot, most of my customers, I mean, I have, I would say I have 50% of my, my customer base is coming from the United States. And then, and the, the other 50% basically, you know, from all over the world. So I, I think, you know, the Americans, certain Americans understand real money. Uh, they also understand how an economy basically uh, would work. They also understand that, you know, that this big experiment that we are in is going to end. So I think decent, humble people who can think for themselves independently, who are questioning some basic stuff, you know, who ask the basic questions or thought about basic questions. Where is money coming from? Uh, how can money came into existence is it is it good that we have money which is depreciating over time private property rights uh, stuff well, like that depreciating money creates jobs and and exports and prosperity doesn't it yeah yeah absolutely i mean that's that's <laughs> the keynesian that's the keynesian uh, that's a keynesian viewpoint i mean in a credit-based system i mean it has to grow and uh, and people have to consume faster and at the same time you have to make sure that you keep products cheap so that's why you know the, the u.s sold out their industry you know to China. China, for example, quite a lot of, of the Western world did that, of course, because they just opened up, you know, the slave market. By doing this, they were able, you know, to still, uh, you know, get get the products for cheap price and, and still, you know, make a good margin on it. But I mean, this is this is always uh, 
going for a certain period of time, then it's over. Yeah, and credit, I mean, you can you can fill up a house with credit up to the roof, but one fine day, it's over. And, um, well, you know, that's basically where we are, you know. Uh, I think the world really has changed. I think the current system is really coming to an end. Everything has an end. It's only the sausage has two. <laughs> um, and we are now, I mean, what people have been told in universities, most of it is absolutely nonsense. It doesn't make sense. You know, it's intellectual idiot, idiotocy or idiotocy. How do you say uh, that in English? But, you know, people are completely uh, confused. I have a concept that I call the sniff test. And that is to something pass a basic, you know, quick inspection. And so um, perfect example of this, some alleged economist on Twitter said that there's only one reason why people own houses, and that is it provides rent control. It doesn't pass the sniff test. I mean, I think if you ask 10 people, own a house, why do you own a house? You're going to get 10 different reasons. So yeah, yeah. for the economics profession, so-called, to go and declare these things, n- nobody really believes that. That's that's absurd. But they say it because it helps them on their way to some other politically useful conclusion where they want to impose a certain policy. And these rationalizations serve to you know bolster that that policy. Yeah. Um, you know, anyway, so, so getting back to the, the question about how Americans view gold versus other people, I've had an opportunity in my, so before COVID, I was traveling more than 50% of the time and mostly outside the U.S. So I had a chance to spend a lot of time. I think I met with you once or twice in uh, Zurich, yeah. but I've met, I've met with a lot of people in most of the European countries and many of the countries in Southeast Asia and, and other places. I always try to be alert to, you know, the difference between my perceptions and my my values and my take on things versus as an American versus how other people perceive things. I ended up thinking that I still do think that Americans probably understand gold the least okay. um, of anybody in the world. And it's because, you know, we've been in the fortunate position of not experiencing hyperinflations and currency collapses and, you know, the kind of disruptions, obviously total war. There's a lot of things that have happened in other places in the world where, you know, nobody's had the luxury of taking the currency for granted as Americans have had. May, may arguably Canada is, is similar. And uh, so Americans just put it out of mind and just said, well, you know, I'm sure that the Fed isn't going to let that happen or, or something, which is a very naive, well, I'm, I'm sure it's fine. And they do a little bit of hand waving, have another glass of wine, you know. Of course, something is going on in the world today that's never gone on before, which is the entire world has gone all in, uh, as they say in uh, in the game of Texas Hold'em Poker. Everybody's, every country in the world is betting on the same exact system, which is this dollar-based irredeemable currency that's been severed from gold. And every country in the world is in on it. We've never had that before. Whenever one country or another has, you know, has their money, has had their money collapse, there's always been other countries that had a much better monetary system. And so aid and capital and investment could come in from other places that weren't ruined, you know, by the event in that particular country. But today when it happens, it will be global and there won't be any, there won't be any place from outside that can come in and invest or, you know, deploy capital, which makes this particularly, you know, particularly scary. Yeah. I mean, the US really had the checkbook, the world currency reserve, 
where they had the freedom. I mean, yeah, instead of, of paying, you know, international trades in gold, they basically were able to to, uh, to print as much dollars as they wanted. That's what Fr- Charles de Gaulle called the exorbitant privilege, uh, you know, with the Bretton Woods uh, agreement. And so, I mean, of course, it's like the continuum effect, you know, I mean, so America really has been the, the key leader uh, of, of, of the world and at the same time, the biggest central bank and with the US dollar becoming the world currency reserve, it has also corrupted a lot of the American society, like everywhere, I mean, of course. But I think America really, I mean, that's why it's the biggest the capital market. I mean, capital, the biggest debt market, credit market. And yeah, for the other for the other countries, I mean, it was was perfect, you know. I mean, it was really going. I mean, we have lived the last 50 years. Look at the look at the total debt of the United States. Everything has been done. 99% have been uh, done since 1971 when Nixon went off the gold standard. When we really had the debt. Or- it doubles about every eight years, right? Yeah. I think today even faster. <laughs> right. It's going into this exponential uh, curve at the end of the day. But people are completely uh, decoupled from how, how a real economy is working. I mean, they don't even understand that first you have to produce and to save so that you're able to invest. Today, I mean, people believe, uh, you know, okay, just take take on credit and consume. And uh, this has been the story for, for, the, for the past decades. And uh, this is also, uh, at the same, you know, when people don't save any longer, uh, then they also, it's a destruction of civilization. I think that's what we are witnessing for a longer period, several decades already, and now it's really coming towards the end. We also have these cycles, you know, these long-term debt cycles, Jubilee, which we already had in the Bible, 50 years, the slaves are freed, that's forgiven. I mean, it's completely absurd what we are witnessing today in the markets, what's going on uh, you know, in, in the mainstream media. Everything is fake. I mean, everything is fake. Then you have the sheep who basically go with the flow and are investing they don't own, you know, an investor is completely different than an owner. People are not used to own things 100%. Everyone is invested in something uh, which is driven up uh, by, by artificial credit. And, and it was, it has been a great party. But now, I mean, yeah, the sound is getting uh, uh, calmer and, uh, and soon the dancing most likely is also going to stop. You know, to, to comment about saving, what's the incentive to save if the interest rate is zero or negative? I mean, absolutely. I mean, that has been the message, you know, for at least since 2008. Mm-hmm. The message was basically, hey, don't save, take on credit, consume as fast and as, as much as you can. And uh, here is the credit, you know, if you want to know how much money is worth, then try to go and borrow it. I mean, if you get the money almost for free, then you know it's, it's worth not that much. Easy come, easy go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think a lot in terms of incentives. What is the incentive saying to people if savings get no return or even negative return and borrowing every day borrowing becomes cheaper yeah what is the incentive that that encourages people what is that encouraging them to do you know you made a comment earlier about the corruption of the system corrupts everybody if the top of the system is funny money and dishonest do a lot of people look at that and say well if they can do that why shouldn't i do this it's a very, you know, subtle effect that undermines any desire for people to act ethically. Of course, now, I, I don't know if you saw the news that uh, so far two regional Fed presidents have resigned. I'm sorry, not resigned, announced their retirement due to health. Well, one of them said health. The other one, um, you know, got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, you know, trading his personal account. And these are multi-million dollar trades. That's the interesting thing. A day before the Fed would make a major announcement of a policy, he was trading his personal account. And it was things like S&P futures. 
So not investments, but just, you know, a bet on, you know, how the markets were going to react to what the Fed was going to do next. You know, it's not surprising to me, and I'd love your take on this as well, but it's not surprising to me that the people who are in power are seeking, you know, personal gain from it. That's not the surprising part at all. The surprising part is how brazen and blatant it was that nobody thought anything of this. Nobody thought, you know, maybe this is going to be a problem. Maybe this is going to be on the front page of, you know, New York Times or Zero Hedge. Maybe I don't, you know, I don't want to do this. There's a term that Bastiat coined almost 200 years ago. So everyone says this is insider trading. And my argument is, no, no, insider trading is when you trade based on what you know. This is different. These people are trading based on what they have the power to do to you. And so Bastiat coined a term that he called spoliation, which is related to taking the spoils as in like the spoils of, you know, an armed robbery or um, murder or war, you know, you're you're grabbing the spoils. I think the world should, uh, should adopt that term for when politicians and central bankers are, you know, trading to profiteer on their own policy decisions. Do you have any any comment or thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, of course. And I think what we have witnessed over the past decades, I mean, yeah, there is corruption everywhere. And as you as you mentioned before, this insider trading, it's not even, uh, if, if you are in the right position, uh, political, uh, I mean, then I think you're even protected. They really do whatever they want to do. I mean, we can see it also now with the whole corona pandemic, the mass media campaign. Everyone that is basically a bit still sane, sound, you know, realizes that it's smelly, it stinks. And that it's amazing how orchestrated, you know, lies can be pushed out. Mis, uh, misinformation can be pushed. I mean, the fake news debate came not because of uh, alternative news. I mean, the fake news debate came up because people realized that all the mass media, most of it is really bullshit. And once you understand the system we are in and the lies and the framing on TV and on, in the media, I mean, once you realize that this is all bullshit, I mean, then you're just watching in front of the TV and you're laughing what they are telling you. It's- you know, I, I have a, a thing that I say sometimes, which is, you have to laugh because otherwise you have to cry. Mm, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, even now, I mean, I, I'm surprised to see how many people really started, the awakening started really last year in March. Because up to then, I had lots of friends of mine, you know, happy life. Uh, they always told me, Claudio, I understand the system. I'm doing fine. You know, as long as I make more than inflation, everything is okay. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a house, mortgage, a few cars, nice apartment. It's okay. You know? And then when, when, when that stuff happened in, in March, you know, with 40 people dying in, in, a, in a 12 million city in Wuhan and, uh, and the world decided to close down and to, 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 to ground fleets and so on, uh, some people realized, hey, this is now, I mean, what's going on? You know, this is completely insane. Since then, I mean, the brave ones, the ones who, who try to understand, uh, the ones who, who still can yeah, think independently, and are brave enough to ask certain questions. I mean, they, they get it. I would say here in Switzerland, most likely we'll talk about roughly 20% of the people. And the rest are really no servants. They are sticking to the system. They are afraid. They also realize something is smelly. They realize that the world has already changed. But they still you know, hope for the nanny state, that the nanny state will take care of them. They don't want to hear about these big moves and, and changes because they are just scared. Or they are extremely profiting from the current system. So they don't want to hear about it anyway. 
but I think society has uh, shifted and society is divided. And that's where so we cannot bring it together any longer. I think, you know, one, one solution fits it all. I think that's over because uh, like, you know, this vaccine, I think that's the red line for a lot, lot of people. And I mean, 18 months ago, I already had the feeling, you know, that Corona is the end of the nation state. You had the First World War, the old transformation, you know, from uh, the monarch monarchistic old structures into nation states, Second World War into ideologies. And now basically this is, you know, the big agenda behind Corona, of course, is, you know, the new Green Deal. You know, the useful idiots from the Melon Fraction Party, you know, outside green, inside red, and the core brown. Uh, they push, you know, for this new green economy, CO2 emission free, that that will bring us back, you know, to, to the Middle Ages. In the United States, the governor of Arizona, but I think all the governors did this, divided businesses and, and workers into two categories, essential and non-essential. And um, did you have anything like that in um, Switzerland? Well, I mean, you know, also over here, uh, basically politics. I mean, we only know that from totalitarian or authoritarian system. That's what's going with that is you can yeah. see where that, that leads very obviously. I don't think you need to be a PhD in sociology to understand once you declare a group of people to be non-essential, and then you say, well, these people, of course, have to be forced to be unemployed, and then we have to give them your money because they have to live, then they become uh, an overt parasite class. You've already labeled them non-essential. It's not too many steps to say, let's exterminate them, right? Yeah. I don't think the culture in the Western world is ready for that just yet. I think yeah. these take time to bubble up and ferment and it takes more events and more things and, and more propaganda before people will be ready to, you know, to return to the 1930s ideologically. But it's a very scary, that to me, there's a couple of things that really hit me, you know, particularly as an American citizen, because we have this constitution that gets in the politician's way all the time. There were, there were two other things that they were talking about that they didn't do, but they were talking about it openly and it became, are you familiar with the Overton window? You know, what's the spectrum of allowable discussion or debate? Okay. Overton window moved pretty far to the authoritarian because there were two things that were being discussed. And one is for states that temporarily had lower COVID rates that they were talking about prohibiting travel from people from other states. Now, the U.S. Constitution is pretty clear that people and goods and money have to be allowed to flow freely between the states. In fact, that was the meaning of regulated interstate commerce. It didn't mean impose 100,000 pages of what we call regulation. It meant to make it regular and not allow any state to get greedy or uh, xenophobic and lock out you know, their neighbors. That came on the table. And the other one was that they, they were talking about, Trump was talking about, if an American citizen was visiting a foreign country that had a high COVID rate, then maybe we wouldn't allow the U.S. citizen back into the U.S., which if they tried to do that would be a constitutional crisis. How can you not allow a citizen back into the country? And so when these things are proposed, it tears at the fabric of the entire political, legal, constitutional system. And if those things go, then what else would go? Because anything goes. They can do anything they want. And, um, and the people are just, you know, either living in fear or cheering it on and, you know, demanding more. Some of those things were, were, were very, very concerning. I mean... You know, to me, when Corona started, to me, it was always an attempt of a kind of, that's a cultural revolution for the Western civilization, for the Western world. You know, I, I really, I, you know, I compare it with the Bolshevik revolution in, in, in Russia or with Mao in China. So now what we are witnessing with Corona is basically a cultural revolution uh, in the Western world because it's going against uh, individualism. 
it's 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 really the the fight between individualism and collectivism. Uh, at the same time, you know, it started decades ago. The Russian propaganda, the Soviet propaganda. I mean, they invested the most amount of money in in propaganda. They also understood that individualism is more superior, and uh, and that's that's why one of their goals was to destroy Western uh, values, you know, such as self responsibility. Man is born free. We are not the means to an end. Freedom of speech, freedom of choice, private property needs to be protected. I mean, basically, that's all at stake. You know, and Corona basically cancelled all all those values which made the Western world so successful. And then this cancel culture, of course, and all that stuff. We were the only culture that decided to end slavery, and not because a king or a president that decided, because people came to the conclusion first of all that it's not right, and second, they also understood that slavery is more expensive than when people are uh, working freely. You know, because they have a different motivation and a hardworking person, if he can make his, his own money and is free, he will always be more productive than slaves. And now they even basically are telling us that we are the guys responsible for slavery and all that stuff. And that capitalism and industrialization has been an exploitation of people. I also believe they're not going to succeed to destroy uh, Western uh, Western culture, Western civilization. Uh, I mean, I was shocked, of course, because you know we, we did. I also did a movie. I started a movie as a friend of mine, Planet Lockdown. So basically, last year we were already traveling around doing interviews with uh, epidemiologists, virologists, uh, professors of economics, you know, statesmen, uh, private entrepreneurs, because we wanted to show the impact of Corona, not, you know, not from this flu and fear perspective. We also wanted to show the implications of that political doctrine when it comes to uh, a free society, when it comes to the global economy, you know, when it comes to the international uh, the division of, of labor. I think a lot of a lot of people in the West realize that this is that this is the big, big agenda behind it, but uh, it, it's still a small minority. People just lack imagination. They cannot even imagine that government can go bankrupt these days. I think in the U.S., at least specifically regarding lockdown and, and COVID, I think it's not a small minority. I think it's a big minority. I think it's probably 40-something percentage points of the population are sick of lockdown and that either changed their view that originally believed in lockdown and now come to realize that this is a big power grab by the politicians, or... I know several people that at the beginning, they said two weeks to flatten the curve. And there were a lot of people that said, okay, okay, if it's two weeks and this is going to avoid, you know, people dying, you know, in, in the hallways, in the hospitals, you know, to avert this, you know, humanitarian crisis, sure, we'll agree to this. But then at the end of two weeks, of course, it wasn't over. That was only just beginning. So I think, I think there's a lot of people, at least in the U.S., that are, you know, increasingly upset about lockdown and increasingly demanding that all the lockdowns go away. And so, you know, you have states like Arizona here, there is no COVID policy anymore in Arizona. There's no mask, there's no vaccine, there's no, I mean, you can get the vaccine if you want it, but there's no requirement to wear a mask. There's no limits on gatherings indoors or anything like that. And in fact, the governor went pretty far as to prohibit any government agency from requiring a mask or a vaccine. Okay. So if you're a private business, then obviously you can demand masks if you want. Most in Arizona do not do that because it's not popular with the customers. Other states still have various mask measures and they're talking about vaccine passports and all these things. So I think it's pretty close to 50-50 here in the U.S. Okay. 
Now that's I mean perfect. I mean you know the U.S. I mean we have the, the cultural roots of freedom. I mean that's really you know part of the U.S. history. You know of the old of the old narrative. People went to the U.S. because of more freedom and more liberty and, and the Constitution. And and I mean the Americans I know they are all freedom loving individuals. I mean over here in Europe people are seem to be a bit more uh, obedient. Also here in Switzerland, you know I mean we always had we always had a weak government. You know, we don't have one president. We have seven of these uh, guys. For example, so the vision of power was always uh, granted in a way. And then, of course, our government, you know, had a weak government up to 20 years ago. I mean, you haven't seen any, you know, pictures when it comes to political campaigns and so on. We only knew that from in Germany, but not in Switzerland. Okay, that has changed in the last 20 years. But, you know, 20 years ago, it was, yeah, when we were still on a gold standard. I mean, Switzerland was really in a good shape, but the last 20 years, I think all over the world, everything has been pushed out. This globalization, the globalization means no borders. No borders means no private property. You, know, you don't you don't have definition of private property, uh, clear definitions. And man is becoming, I mean, yeah, the global citizen. And uh, let me let me just share my my perception of one change that occurred in Switzerland. So, as listeners would know, and as you may know, I built and sold a software company in 2008. It was a company called Diamondware, and I sold it to Nortel Networks. The transaction closed August 19, 2008, right before everything began to collapse. Perfect. So at first, I was just staring at the markets with amusement. But as I began to realize how serious it was, that was the beginning of my international travels. I looked at, okay, well, how do I protect myself, get money out of the country, all those things. So I visited Zurich and I had a meeting with a, uh, I'm not going to say who, because that's not really the point, but a um, private bank that focuses on probably wealthy expats. I don't I don't know how much Swiss business they do, but they focused on on uh, people like me. Although at that point, the American government had started to become pretty aggressive with tax reporting. Yeah. So a lot of the Swiss financial institutions didn't want to talk to Americans at all. But anyways, they, they were happy to talk to me. But somehow the, um, the topic came up of TARP and TALP and quantitative easing and all these things that were all these new buzzwords that were implemented in um, either late 2008 or early 2009. And I think I was in Switzerland in maybe spring of 2009. So all these things that happened. I was talking to this you know, senior vice president of this bank, or whatever his title was. He was pretty high up in the bank saying, this is crazy. And he corrected me and he said, well, when you have a crisis, it's necessary to, you know, print money and uh, to go into debt and, uh, you know, deficit spending and money printing is necessary. This is yeah. what this is what this um, Swiss private banker said to me. I walked out of the meeting just kind of shaken up that this is somebody that I would have thought would be in agreement that you, you can't do this, that there's you know, terrible consequences. I, I learned that at least I don't know if he's typical of the private banking industry in Switzerland or not. I didn't have that conversation with enough people to, to have a sample size and, and do a study, but it, it blew me away to hear that being said by that person. This wasn't some socialist, you know, spray painting a hammer and sickle on the front of a uh, jewelry store on uh, Bahnhofstrasse. This was, you know, a banker catering to, you know, to big clients and I'm sure himself personally worth a lot saying, yeah, yeah, we need to print money and, and go into debt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I know, I know some, some old Swiss bankers, but there was, they had the concept of, you know, personal liability. They were not in the credit business. Yeah. It was, you know, to find out if the person that shows up is an entrepreneur that he made his money in, in the right way because Switzerland was a neutral nation. 
old the old private bankers they knew you know if if just because the americans are saying this is the enemy that doesn't need to be the truth you know it's all about geopolitics and we had this uh, neutral position and then, of course, you know, we had, I mean, every, I think it really started in the 90s, middle of the 90s, when you had this whole MBA culture, American coming over to the West of the world. And then we were, everyone was talking about, okay, globalization, think, what think global, act local, all these, all these bullshit words. And of course, also in Switzerland, I mean, we were running on the gold standard until the year of 2000. And then our government basically told us, okay, we have to modernize the constitution, we are not going to take out or make big changes. They never, they never told the people that they basically take out the gold backing, which was part of the constitution. 40% needs to be backed up. So, so, I mean, and then we had, you know, Credit Suisse, UBS, they, they also wanted to join the race for big money. So, you know, they, they purchased First Boston and Warburg. So they also, they also became a global player with a strong affiliation to the United States, direct access to the Federal Reserve, primary deal status, and so on. And then basically the party started and all these banks, they completely, they completely changed. They really became... Uh, so more examples of when it's corrupt at the top, the corruption trickles down to all the other layers. Absolutely. And once, I mean, the bank system, you know, we have this... Back then, we had this Wegelin uh, bank, uh, Mr. Hummler. You know, he was really he was one of these old private bankers. He's, he still he believed that he is a, a Swiss living in a sovereign nation, and then that's why he also took you know American customers on board, believing that uh, when they come from a Swiss bank, that you know he might make his share, whatever. But he thought we are sovereign, independent, and and he was threatened, uh, you know, by the by the U.S. that that he would lose access to to U.S. dollar. And of course, you know, if you're in the banking system and you don't have access to U.S. dollars, I mean, you're out, you're gone. You know, you're not part of that of that system any longer. Even in 2000, I mean, you know, we had this under Clinton when we basically got accused that we were the guys prolonging Second World War, that we that the Swiss were doing all these gold trades and uh, we made a fortune and so on. I mean, it's all bullshit. Uh, I mean, they really also de- destroyed Switzerland. That was all. That has always been my point, my my point of view, uh, because Switzerland is the antidote to the current system because it's really non-centralized. It used to be non-centralized. It used to be based on the principles of subsidiarity. You know, everything from the bottom up, based on you know, like Aristotle has always said, "Demos the village, Kratia the rulers." A democracy can work, but on a very low scale. You know, you have to limit the ambitions of the politicians. You have to limit also the wishes of the people. Uh, you know, if you have a structure where basically I in Souk can decide something and the guys in Geneva have to pay for it, I mean, that's that's just not going to work. You know, this. We even also we we lost our decentralized model. Uh, our federal government was trying to gain more power, grasp more power, and so that's. That's how also our country has changed. You have to strain the politicians and the people. I, uh, a point that I make often is that it's the people that are demanding this and pushing this. The politicians simply have to, now they can try to propagandize something, but ultimately it has to be popular. Otherwise, any politician who tries to go against the popular will will be voted out of office. So ultimately, it's the voters that are deciding that they want you to be restricted in some way or they want you to be taxed to give them some benefit. That's the thing that, you know, in the United States now, I think I think it started when um, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and Richard Branson were all talking about or flying into space on their, you know, rockets. You know, people took a look at this with envy and said, hey, why do these billionaires get to fly to space? And meanwhile, you know, there's always some need somewhere. There's always a child without a, a pair of shoes or whatever. They should be taxed. Tax the rich. Yeah. Uh, the politicians are certainly, some of them, Elizabeth Warren, certainly calling for this. 
but so are 30 or 40% of the people. And then another 20 or 30 or 40% really aren't sure whether, whether that's going to benefit them or not. And then there's another 30% maybe that don't want any more taxes on the rich or anybody else. And that's, yeah. that's the damnable fact of uh, how politics works. And the unjust idea that you can propose, there's probably 30% of the people that you know, would support it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the free lunch uh, myth is still, you know, what the people are looking for. I mean, and, and, and a very high time preference. I want to have everything now. This is this is in the nature of man. And so that has been exploited by the politicians, of course, and by uh, this credit-based system. But I'm always saying, you know, I mean, in a credit-based system, money is never an issue or currency is never an issue. It's always the scarcity of goods and services. And, uh, and when it comes to goods and services, you know, now where we're standing today, I mean, there we are in a heavy deflationary uh, environment. And when it comes to monetary supply and so on, I mean, it's basically uh, inflationary. Um, so I think that's an additional booster, you know, for, for hyperinflation in the future. So, I mean, everything comes to an end. If you don't know the history, then you're doomed to repeat it. And, uh, and look, at, look at all, you know, I mean, Marx, Karl Marx always said, you know, the task of a philosopher is not to interpret uh, history, he has to change it. And when I see, you know, in the US or even Europe, all this de-illusioned yaws, which is basically tearing down statues, trying to destroy, you know, history, good or bad, I think it's it's important. It's part of our culture. And if we destroy everything and we take away the history uh, of, of the people, I mean, then they, they become really a kind of mass manipulation tool. You can do everything with them. And when I look into history books, I love to read, I love history but the more i read the more i understand how do i know if this is true no i mean if we look if we only look i mean history has always been written by the winners and uh, so maybe you know i don't know what napoleon did in the past i don't know if this is true or not maybe it's all bullshit maybe it's all fake but um without freedom anything else is is worth nothing at the end of the day and i don't want to end up no, if there's no free marketplace for ideas then a lie can win. As long as people are free to be able to talk, then... Yeah, to enlighten themselves by reasoning, 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 you know, having open discussions, not being afraid to, to say something and that somebody else put you in jail because it does not go along with the official narrative. I mean, this is really, yeah, this is totalitarian. I mean, I discussed I discussed with lots of clouds last year in, in November uh, when I was in Prague doing this uh, Planet Lockdown documentary. I was talking about what he thinks about social distancing, self-quarantine, human interaction becomes a threat and he basically told me claudio we know that we know that from communism it's basically the basis for every totalitarian system first of all you have to destroy the horizontal relationships right and this is what we are witnessing now for 18 months and this is also what we can see in society it's still working there is nothing new under the sun it's always divide and conquer fear and control this time we basically witnessed with corona also shock and awe you know really this military psyop american doctrine of shock and awe it's crazy. I mean, it's really, it's horrible. I mean, it's, I, I would never have thought that this, something like this can, can happen and uh, would be possible. But at the yeah, end, you put, put everybody behind a mask so you can't even recognize your friends anymore. And then you make everybody. It's a muscle. It's a muscle. It's a, you know, it's the, the, yeah. the mask is the muscle. I mean, just, you know, shut up and, uh, and take it. And uh, we are going into this new, whatever, green, great reset. Uh, but, uh, but the message was, you know, shut up. <laughs> slaves i mean a sign of slaves is you know these these muscles that's they the, always have part. but then the second part is they make everybody fear their uh their friends and their neighbors which destroys the relationships between people and yeah. everybody has to turn to the government as the only only source you can trust yeah 
And, and, um, trust, and trust is key in a society. I mean, without trust, you don't have a sound society. So, so switching topics, do you have any thoughts on the coming implementation of Basel III regulations for the gold trade? I mean, honestly, you know, for me, I believe it's irre- irrelevant. You know, I mean, the central banks are becoming irrelevant in the future. I don't believe that, I you know, the, it's the old system. It's, and I think the best people can do today is try to get out of that system as soon as possible, because otherwise, yeah, you're going to end up with, you own nothing and you will be happy because it, the banking system, that's the old world. And I think it's it's going to end anyway. Basel three and all these regulations, I don't care. It doesn't make a difference. I don't know how the world will look like in six months' time. I have no clue. I think now we are going into one of these hot periods because, you know, really now governments, I mean, they still, they want to destroy the current system. I mean, we don't, we know lockdowns don't work, but they're still doing, doing it. And now they basically have society divided. Uh, they, they push these uh, vaccine passports in Italy, in France, in the UK, uh, in Australia. And I think this winter will be harsher than the past 18 months. But uh, I think people are going to riot. And that's also what these uh, sociopaths who are ruling, uh, you know, the centralized system uh, are looking for. But you have to destroy an old system to create a new one cows out of order as long as you can keep the people in this dialectic you know the hegelian dialectic problem reaction solution you provoke uh, you, you create the problem you provoke reaction then you come up with a solution and then you restart again and as long as the people are part of that dialectic i mean then they will be always captured so to me i i already said 18 months ago i'm not part of that i'm pro or against any longer i take a step back i watch it i watch it as an observer, and I basically don't take part in that Muppet show any longer. I just exit the system as good as I can, and I, I started the thinking process how I can protect me and my family and my uh, and friends. You know, basically by uh, we started the initiative here in uh, Ticino, uh, where we have our own uh, small municipality off grid, uh, where we like to attract like-minded individuals uh, so that they come up there. And, uh, and we can prepare for what is coming. But to me, the future is decentralized. I don't see that World Economic Forum, Great Reset, Chinese surveillance, modern monetary theory and universal basic income bullshit. It's not going to work. Central planning never worked. It will not work also in the future. And we are at the end of fiat is going down the drain. And just by replacing paper with a centralized digital banking coin, why should the people accept such a deal? I mean, you want to switch from bullshit oh. to another bullshit? I mean, it's a joke. I, I don't think they will. And one of my theories is that credit only works when people are willing to grant it. When we say, you know, fiat currency is going to collapse, a great part of that is going to be a collapse and a willingness to extend trust. Then there's no way for them to declare, oh, that currency didn't work well. Well, here's another currency. It's a central bank digital currency. It's an IMF strategic drawing rights currency. You can't, once that cat is out of the bag, you can't get that cat back into the bag by just declaring a new currency. Yeah. Or the trust, the trust would have to be earned from zero from the beginning all over again. Um, right. Which is one of the reasons why I think this collapse will be horrific. It will be, if, if this collapse comes and, and nothing is done to revert it, this will be like the collapse of Rome. There'll be a dark age to follow because there'll be the collapse of trust and nobody will extend any kind of credit, any kind of long-term contract. It's you know cash on the barrelhead only. And I think I think that's a, a consequence of destruction of, of trust and credit on, on the scale that they're doing right now. Why should yeah, anybody yeah. trust anybody else if, if this is how the world works? Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is, is absurd. It's really, it's completely absurd. And everything is fake. 
and everything is manipulated. Libor more, everything is. Man- I mean, so just to touch on one more absurdity, on, on top of all the other absurdities, negative interest rates, which came to Switzerland first and now has spread like a cancer to uh, many other countries, including Japan and obviously Europe. What do you What do you think of negative interest rates? It's completely insane. I mean, it's it's, it's nonsense, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's destroying the system anyway. As you said, you know, the system is going to collapse when people lose trust in the institution. Even I look at this big Netflix series, the way government politicians uh, is, is presented, they're all crooks, they're all bandits, they're, they're criminals, they're murderers. Uh, so, I mean, I, I even sometimes I have the feeling that a lot, a lot of different uh, interest groups, which are part of that uh, system, they are actively working to destroy the trust uh, in the institutions. You know? so, but, so that's why I, I, I believe, you know, like this George Soros, you know, cows out of order. They also have no clue what they know that it's going to the end. Corona has been a great scapegoat so that the people don't believe that government and central banks are responsible for the crash because that's, I mean, they are responsible for the crash. So they can blame it now on Corona. They had to shut down to protect the people and so on. Uh, but I think, you know, in the future, people will, re- will realize that this has all been uh, a psyop, a military psyop on a global scale, but that it's all bullshit. Um, and hopefully, I mean, the, the good stuff right now is the Swiss people. I mean, I'm now in this globe for 12, 30 years professionally. I never, I have never seen so many uh, Swiss people buying gold. And it's not, not the big ones, but it's mainly, you know, the smaller the smaller guys, 20,000, 5,000, 25,000, some of my partners are up 400% in terms of new customers. So, you know, the little guy on the street, which is not intellectually brainwashed, uh, they, they get it. They still have, you know, the right instincts. They understand that this cannot work and that whatever they are talking, the freaks, you know, the, the anointed experts, uh, the intellectual idiots, they don't believe them any longer. They don't believe that it makes sense. And the narrative sw- switching, you know, from... Yeah, flattening the curve, then, you know, the hospital uh, emergency capacities and all that stuff. I mean, here in Switzerland, for example, they reduced the, the emergency capacity by almost 50% uh, over the last uh, seven months. Switching to one last topic, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies versus gold. Okay, yeah. I still, you know, I still prefer gold. I still prefer tangible. I can own it. I have it. It's physically, it's there. Because... I mean, also these WEF guys and great and great reset guys, they're talking about taking down the grid. Uh, when we look at the, the bigger agenda, you know, green, new economy, blah, blah. I mean, we, we're just going to have huge problems with electricity, power supply, and so on. So I think, and the, and the internet as such is still centralized. So we really have to, uh, to develop a fully decentralized uh, internet. But crypto, the concept of cryptocurrencies, blockchain, the digitalization, peer-to-peer as such, uh, I think that's the future. That's part of the future. We are right now standing also at the kind of dot-com, dot-com bubble 2.0. And when you think about 20 years ago, I mean, the big players are not around any longer. And um, maybe Bitcoin can make it, maybe not. Because all these exchanges strongly regulated, everyone wanted to come uh, get the banking license. Uh, the hashtag w- where Bitcoin has been created is coming from the NSA. So I, I don't know. It's it's still a pure speculation. But I always embrace. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I embrace cryptos and so on. I think that's really part of the solution also of the future, but it needs to be fully decentralized. I can certainly see having been a, a computer software developer and having worked on architectures that were decentralized or centralized, the scalability, the single points of failure. You know, we have this we have this system today where in order to transfer a dollar to somebody else, 
it has to go through one single choke point, which of course is enormously pleasing to the person who controls that choke point, but doesn't necessarily serve anybody else. And um, I think there's something about gold that lends itself to being distributed and, you know, if not peer-to-peer, at least many-to-many different vaults and different participants in a, in a network and not, you know, not one central, obviously central bank, but not one central clearinghouse necessary for, you know, transfers of, of gold to go through. Absolutely. What is the function of money? It has basically two functions, medium of exchange and store of value. That's the way it should be in a, in a, in a free market. That's no, also I have, what the I have to add a third which is to finance productive activity. It has to earn interest for savers and it has to be borrowed and finance growth and production capacity. Absolutely. I mean, that's why you get the, the interest rate. When you lean out or when you give money to somebody else to invest and so on, and, uh, and you basically don't consume or you, know, you have a certain risk not to get it back. I mean, that's why you... That's why you get an interest rate or a risk premium for this. It has always been like this. It can be also in the future. That will be sound. Uh, and I think we're also going to go back to that one. You know, gold, gold, yeah, I mean, gold just has a history of 5,000 years. And Bitcoin uh, hasn't proven the test of time. Let's call it that way. We should be interested in, in both, in the digitalization, in the cryptos, but we all just should, uh, should be interested in monetary history and, you know, what really has been, yeah, gold is money, everything else is credit. I see the cryptocurrencies more. I mean, it's open source. So if something is becoming too big, too successful, then you know, you're going to have others jumping in, the right to fork. So it's, it's in a constant environment which is dominated by competition. So to me, I mean, I would love to see cryptocurrencies in a very stable way and that you have a store of value. So you basically can sell your gold against the crypto, which is uh, stable, and you can travel around the world and, uh, and go back and forth. So I think that's a bit... So I see, th- I see that combination. You no, know, that's uh, that cryptos are a superior medium of exchange, but gold uh, will remain, you know, superior store of value. All right. Well, th- thanks so much, Claudio. This has been a fascinating conversation that spanned the globe and spanned everything from history to lockdown to money to society to political principles and philosophy. It's been a lot of fun. We should do this again sometime. Hey, always a pleasure talking to you, Keith. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you as well, and stay free. You too. You too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.